Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. Talk number seven, from Faraday to Ferranti, given by Trevor Williams. Part A. Well, what would we do without electrical power? I think it would be a pretty hard life, and I wouldn't be projecting this talk up here without it. So um, it seems, although it's relatively recent history, it, uh, it seems like a good historical topic for us to be reviewing. The two names I've got here, Faraday and Ferrante, these are the two sort of significant figures, at least as far as the UK is concerned. Faraday is the scientist, and when the scientist's work comes to an end, we need the engineer, and that was Ferranti who designed, perhaps not the very first electrical power system, but the first power system of a form that uh, we are accustomed to today. So I'm going to start, of course, with Faraday. He was really an amazing man. His background was, was so uninspiring, I suppose. A father who was a blacksmith, so no doubt he was expected to be a blacksmith. And there was nothing really in him to suggest that he might turn into one of the most remarkable scientists that the century had produced. As you can see, he had the most basic education, just perhaps reading, writing, and a little arithmetic. But then this apprentice to a bookbinder and bookseller, and that suggests there was something different in him from uh, his contemporaries. He obviously had a, a drive to make more of himself, and so the, the, all the books that passed through his hands, he was able to have a look at them, and see what they said, and if it interested him, he could perhaps take them away and study them. Perhaps the last thing on the bottom here perhaps gives an indication of the sort of unusual person he was. This was this Sandemanian Christian sect. This was a very strict and peculiar, in a way, Sandemanian sect. It was an offshoot of the um, Scottish uh, religious uh, party. And uh, it was extremely strict in the attendance required and the various rules that uh, it operated in. And he remained committed to that. He, he, he joined it, I think, in his early 20s and then was committed to it throughout his life. Although the sect, of course, was tending to decline and disappeared about the beginning of the 20th century. This picture shows the, the sort of displays of science which were very popular. You can see the sort of people who were there, the general hoi polloi. Demonstrators showed science which was so surprising that it attracted a great amount of attention. I, and I'd like you to keep that picture in mind because I've got another picture coming up which is similar in some ways but remarkably different in others. Anyway, these kind of displays were very popular. Of course, Faraday had very little money from his job, but he did find money to go 
uh, to these displays, and he found them enormously interesting. Towards the end of this period, he managed to go to uh, the Royal Institution, who also gave experimental displays. Being the sort of person he was, he uh, noted it all down and then put his own comments on it. So when this um, advert for a, a laboratory assistant appeared, he was able to send these notes up to the Royal Institution as a part of his application. And the chief man there, Sir Humphrey Davy, inevitably was very impressed, and inevitably he offered Faraday the, uh, uh, the job of the laboratory assistant. And that began a very long association with the Royal Institution. I, until really quite recently, was always very puzzled about the difference between the Royal Society and the Royal Institution. No doubt you are all expert in these things and will know the difference. But for me, I had to keep reminding myself that the Royal Society was a sort of club for scientists who could gather together, discuss their experiences, but as you can see, this royal institution uh, was established within the metropolis of the British Empire to promote the understanding of science and its application to the common purposes of life. If you read about it, it's all a bit puzzling as to where the finance came from and where the driving force came from. But it's really been, over its lifetime, uh, it's really been remarkably successful. They had a professor and public lecturer, and here you have him in full flood with the audience in the very impressive Royal Institution building. And I think it's fascinating to compare the Royal Institution here and the audience, bearing in mind that this is intended to be for the public in general, and we have all these evening-dressed observers sitting there. The, the type of person who is attracted to the Royal Institution is so different from in the previous example. Yes, the, the, the sort of scientists that the Royal Institution has attracted, as you can see, are 16 Nobel Prize winners. In their role of professor and public lecturer, they were able to do their own research in the Royal Institution, and presumably that's the basis on which they won these Nobel Prizes. So Sir Humphrey Davy would have been at this table there. I don't know if any of you have been to the Royal Institution. I mean, it, until quite recently, its original form was still there, and the people used to complain bitterly that it didn't have enough room on the seats. But, but I think people today are rather bigger than they were <laughs> when the Royal Institution was built. And so uh, there was a a lot of complaints about it. Sir Humphrey Davy uh, was quite a brilliant man and, uh, amongst other things, invented the miner's lamp. Uh, are you all familiar with the miner's lamp? Yep. Oh, good. And so, um, as you can see, he was a very popular lecturer. Faraday, of course, followed on with the work that he'd been doing. So it was chemistry initially, that in which Faraday distinguished himself. Davy presumably was able to get enough money from the institution to make this uh, European tour, 
and Faraday was able to go with him. Of course, the story told about that is uh, they had their coach and horses to take them around uh, Europe, but uh, Mrs. Davy, I suppose it should, should be Lady Davy, she would not allow Faraday to come into the coach uh, with her and her husband. As far as she was concerned, Faraday was a servant, so he had to sit on the top of the coach. <laughs> and so whatever the weather, poor old Faraday was up on top with the coachman and the other two were down below inside. But Faraday, being the sort of man he was, uh, he never raised the slightest difficulty about this. He was perfectly happy. But he did, again, widen his scientific knowledge enormously because he was able to visit and talk to all these uh, scientists working throughout Europe. And uh, so that was a, a great uh, advantage to him. The sort of experiments they did were experiments which there would be great anxiety about today because they would be considered totally unsafe. And they took no precautions to protect themselves when doing them. And so inevitably, sooner or later, it all went wrong. And when a Davy was doing his, an experiment, there was a great explosion, and he was injured and was unable to continue. And so Faraday had to take over from him. And then shortly afterwards, uh, Davy uh, retired, and Faraday was then clearly the man to continue his work. And so he took over the role of professor and uh, lecturer at the institution. <laughs> and he published quite a lot of his work. It was new and extended work beyond that of Davy's initially in uh, electrochemistry, and he was uh, elected FRS, Fellow of the Royal Society, and he continued to work, and also, incidentally, uh, to live in the institution, so there was living accommodation in the building. He was offered all kinds of awards. Uh, I mean, he was generally appreciated by society, but... Uh, Again, I think probably from his Sandemanian principles, he um, refused any award, but he was offered knighthoods and uh, that kind of thing and medals. But no, he wouldn't have anything to do with that. But right at the end of his life, he was offered, I, I'm not sure whether it was Queen Victoria or whether Prince Albert was still alive, but uh, certainly royalty offered him uh, a grace and favour residence in Hampton Court, and he accepted that. So he had the last two years living in uh, Hampton Court Palace and died there in 1867. The uh, Royal Institution obviously uh, wanted to keep um, some mementos of uh, Faraday, and uh, they decided that uh, his laboratory, where he did uh, his work, was worth keeping as a, as a museum piece, and this is a, a glimpse of it in this photograph. I've not really been able to identify anything particular there, I don't think. It was obviously quite an interesting place. Well, now I'm afraid I'm going to take you into a bit of technology and, and a little bit of science and go through a few of Faraday's specifically electrical and magnetic experiments. This, of course, is a, 
a very simple concept. Uh, we have a, a magnet here with north and south poles. And he had a little compass needle and he was able to explore the space around the uh, magnet and decide that this space was a magnetic field. There appeared to be a force working within it and so he decided to express that in the form of lines of force. And this was the format of the space with the lines of force in it. I thought this was actually Faraday's original work, but I was looking at something else the other day, and I discovered this was actually done a few years earlier by Ersted in Germany. So uh, there, there was also, of course, the science that was going on in this country it was also going on in Germany, in France, and the USA. And so there was actually quite a bit of competition between scientists. He then went on to looking at the magnetic field of a wire in which current was flowing. This is a, an electrochemical battery because, of course, we hadn't had any, there was no other way of producing an electric current at this stage. And the current flowing through the wire produces a magnetic field around the wire in this form. Again, Faraday was able to investigate it using his little compass needle and establishing the, the uh, magnetic field. Winding the wire into a coil produced, uh, when, when energized with, a, the, with the battery, produced a magnetic field rather like that of a bar magnet. And he also found that current carrying wire brought into the vicinity of a magnetic field, a mechanical force was exerted and he devised this demonstration to show how a magnetic force would result. Now this is two flasks containing mercury and they establish a circuit. The, the circuit isn't shown here, but the, the current flow is up through one of the, the mercury into the wire connected into it over the top and down through the second wire and out again to the battery. And in one flask, the wire is fixed and the magnet, this, is, this blue thing is a magnet, is able to move. And in the other case, the magnet is fixed, but the wire is able to move. But when it's energized with electricity, the magnet starts to rotate around the wire and in the other case the wire starts to move ar around the magnet. So that was the first demonstration of the use of um, or of the effect of an electric current producing a movement in something, a mechanical force generating a movement. In fact, some people would say that's the first demonstration of an electric motor. And then magnetic induction. Here we have a, a coil connected to a detector of a current flow called a galvanometer. And here is a magnet which can be pushed into the coil and pulled out. When the magnet is moving, a voltage is being generated in that coil, producing a current, and the galvanometer is deflected. 
And in fact, when you push the magnet in, the galvanometer goes one way, and when you pull it out, it goes the other way. The second thing here, this is one of Faraday's great uh, devices, because it's turned into a piece of equipment, which we're going to be talking a lot about, and uh, which is a basis of a great deal of electrical power systems. This diagram is a mix of a an actual piece of equipment and a conventional drawn circuit. So this is an iron ring with two coils wound round it. One coil connected to this battery and the other coil connected to the galvanometer. When you close the switch, the current flows in this coil. The current flowing produces a magnetic field and the magnetic field produces a current in the second coil and that flows through the galvanometer and the galvanometer deflects. So when Faraday closed that switch, the current flowed around, magnetized the bar and as the magnetism increased, it produced a voltage in the other coil and the galvanometer deflected. When he switched it off, the current fell, the magnetism dropped to zero, but as the magnetism was dropping, then again a voltage was induced in that coil and the galvanometer deflected the other way. So it's when the current is rising and falling, the magnetic field is rising and falling, and that's when you get current induced into the second coil. And that idea is, is going to be very important to us in the moment. Although Faraday didn't turn his idea into an actual machine, this chap Barlow did. Um, Barlow, you can see, amazing here, mathematics master at the Royal Military Academy and also an FRS. Be amazing if all our mathematics masters, our FRSs. So, but anyway, he was obviously a pretty lively mind and um, he developed this Barlow's wheel. And here, this is a copper disc with an axis there at A, dipping into a mercury pool and with this magnet arranged around and an electric circuit up here through this horseshoe thing and into the disc, down the, into the mercury and around there. So when a, a battery is connected to the terminals, the current flows following the arrows and the, the magnet is shown in a rather inconvenient place. It would be better if it was raised, but there almost certainly would be enough field there to drive it. But the current then interacting with the magnetic field in the magnet produces a force in that disc and causes the disc to rotate. There's a little idea about getting the direction in which the force actually works. If you extend the first two figures and thumb of the left hand and use these, the, the, the center finger to represent the direction of the current and the forefinger to represent the direction of the field, 
then the thumb represents the direction of motion. So you get the thumb with an M in it for motion, for F, for field, for current. And then if you apply that to, to this disk, uh, the current is going upwards. So that's the, no, that's the center finger, finger, the current. The field is going north to south, that's into, into the screen. Then the thumb gives you the motion, which will be out this way. And as you can see, it agrees with the arrow up there. Here you get Faraday's brilliant mind, because he appreciated that the Barlow's wheel, the process in the Barlow's wheel, ought to be reversible. So instead of using it as a motor, he manually drove the copper disc, and sure enough, it generated a voltage and the current flowed, and so this was the first uh, electric generator to be devised. So this uses brushes rather than a mercury pool to uh, complete the circuit. And it's got the magnet in the right place. So the, the, the copper disc is passing through the magnetic field, producing a generated voltage between the brushes, which drives the current, and the meter gives the reading. And then you can use the same process that we've just done with the left hand. The generator rule uses the right hand. Again, though, it's thumb for motion, forefinger for field, center finger for current. So you can apply the same principle here. In this case, this is a north pole. So the field is going into the uh, screen. The motion is going that way. The forefinger into the as the field, thumb motion, so the current is upwards. So the current flow would be around that way. This sort of a generator, th this is not a, a practical proposition. This is a scientific experiment to show what can be done. So it's really at this point that we break contact with Faraday, and Faraday goes off and uh, does his own thing, continues with his scientific experiments. But we are now going to move into the field of engineering in order to make this a practical proposition and something which we can all use. There's a bit more technology that we have to cope with for a start. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, we all enjoy the experience of without actually knowing what is happening. All our current that comes through us through the mains is alternating current. And so we need to have a look at that and see how it works. To, to make a, a, a practical generator, uh, you need something a lot more elaborate than the simple Barlow's wheel. And the first stage in, in elaboration is shown down here. It's got two poles and it's got a coil here. The, the axis of the rotation is along here. So the coil is rotating and the output from that coil is taken from what are called slip rings, two sliding contacts which take the current out and in this case a little meter here 
to detect it. The, the crucial thing here is that as the coil rotates past the magnet, it's cutting lines of force, so it's having a voltage generated in, into it. But as the coil turns over, it moves from a south pole here to a north, north pole, and so the direction of the current in that coil reverses. And then as it continues round, it reverses again. So the continuous rotation of the coil is producing a, a continuous voltage, which is in one direction and then the reverse direction at a, some frequency, depending on the speed of rotation. And the uh, output from these slip rings is a current which is reversing, going forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, and that would show up on the meter. And this waveform here gives you a, the sort of thing that you see. Starting from this point, you get a high current. Then as it turns to the midpoint, the current drops to zero. Then it comes under the opposite pole, and the current reverses, and so on, and that produces alternating current. You may think, well, that's a peculiar thing, but that is what all our power supplies dotted around, they're all producing that form of alternating current. We don't have to have alternating current, we could have direct current. Direct current, that's a steady, uniform, flowing current, the sort of current that you get from a battery, a dry battery. They call them dry batteries, but of course they must be liquid inside for the electrochemistry to operate. They produce a smooth flow of current, a steady voltage, which is quite different from the sort of thing that we've just seen. But we can get our generator to produce a direct current if instead of putting slip rings on the coil here, if instead we have a commutator. And what the commutator does is to switch the brushes, there's one on either side here, switch the brushes every time the current reverses or the voltage reverses in this coil. So when you would expect the current to be going Backwards, the segments in the commutator have reversed and the current again goes forward. And so you get this kind of waveform. The negative pulses have been put forward and we've got a flow of current now all in one direction. Now you may complain, oh, well, this is nothing like a battery. It's going up and down at a tremendous rate. And that, of course, is true. But you can get over that by having not just one coil here, if you have a number of coils and they each are contributing to the output in turn, you can get a more or less constant voltage because the coil voltages overlap each other and build up to a steady level. So that's the direct current. Well, now we come to our engineer, Sebastian Ziani di Farenti. He is one of many engineers, of course, who are working in this field. There are people devising designs of uh, generators, and there are people 
producing power systems, supply power systems. And particularly, uh, Edison in the USA, an entrepreneur almost as much as, a, as an engineer, and he went, in, in his aims to provide power, he aimed to provide power the same as the sort of power that you get from batteries. And so he was producing direct current power systems. But other people were thinking in terms of um, alternating current, and that is the direction in which Ferenti found himself going. A very different childhood and development as compared with Faraday. Uh, his father, a photographer, w was obviously making a good living because if they lived in Liverpool, they must have sent Sebastian to London, so they must be, have paid for his education in London, and then no doubt he ha they had to pay for his education at University College. I put in this little bit about this dyslexic. I mean, there's quite a bit of his writing available, and although uh, he, he was thought to have poor spelling and not very good grammar, uh, everything is perfectly legible and readable and understandable, and he obviously wrote things at a very high speed. So um, I don't really think it's correct to uh, call him dyslexic. It's astonishing, really, how early he managed to start uh, working in this uh, field. This uh, arc light for street lighting at 13 the, the problem with the uh, street lighting with arc lights is that they have a couple of electrodes which um, pulled apart and an arc is struck between them. But of course, as the uh, arc continues, the electrodes wear away and so the gap gets bigger and bigger. So you have to have a mechanism which pushes one electrode back closer to the other. And so what he, he had devised was a, a, an automatic mechanism for pushing the uh, electrodes closer together to keep the arc going. And then uh, he made contact with William Thompson. Uh, you may remember that William Thompson, he was an admirer of Faraday, and he was the one who produced the mathematics to go with uh, Faraday's work on uh, magnetism and uh, mag magnetic fields and electric fields. It was the field theory which William Thompson made, and he, of course, uh, later became Lord Kelvin, after which the um, temperature scale is named. He was considerably older than uh, Ferranti, and so uh, I think something like 20 years older. So I, I think he looked at the, on him as a sort of protege who he could advise and help. Ferranti produced this dynamo design. We saw this design with a single coil, but to produce a working dynamo, you obviously had to enlarge the arrangement. And Ferranti produced a, an enlarged arrangement with Thompson's advice. He got a patent for it. And then... Uh, he worked. Siemens uh, were also uh, working in the uh, electrical field, and they had a branch in the UK, 
and he worked for them. And then he decided to branch out and established this company, Ferranti, Thompson and Ince. So Thompson lent his name to it, and Ince was the man who did the administration, but it was Ferranti who did the big work. His great opportunity was the Grosvenor Art Gallery. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you.